0: Good evening, the University of Pennsylvania Law School is delighted to partner with Perry World House, the university's new International Affairs Institute, and the platform for global engagement to welcome UN Under Secretary General for Legal Affairs and UN Legal Counsel Miguel de Serpasores to a conversation with Dean Theodore W. Ruger, the Dean of our Law School. At the start of a new year, we look back on a year of extraordinary challenges and milestones. A year when the UN celebrated its 70th birthday along with its founding charter and recommitted itself to a new development agenda, the 2030 Development Agenda. A year when the world adopted the first ever climate change agreement. A year when six major powers lifted sanctions against Iran in exchange for scaling back its nuclear program a year which saw the first full and fair Burmese elections which brought Aung San Suu Kyi's party to power. It was also a year when 60 million people fled their countries on a perilous journey around the world and the world faced some of the worst terrorist attacks of our age. In his distinguished career, Mr Serpasores has represented his country, Portugal, with great honor in various bilateral and multilateral fora ranging from the Council of Europe to the International Criminal Courts Assembly of States Parties. And now, as the legal counsel to the Secretary General, and at the help of the Office of Legal Affairs at the UN, which provides legal services for the entire UN organization of a staff of more than 60,000, Undersecretary Serpasores has one of the most important jobs in the world. Given the breadth of the operations of his office, it is probably the world's most prolific actor in the shaping of international law. But he has told me that he finds the deepest satisfaction in engaging with the next generation of leaders in the law. Last year at his own alma mater, the University of Lisbon's Law School, he said, I consider it as a noble part of my duties as legal counsel of the United Nations to go to universities to discuss with students matters of public international law at the United Nations. And today, we thank you, Under Secretary General, for ennobling Penn Law's community of students with your presence. This evening's conversation between two leading legal thinkers will examine the role of the legal counsel, law at the United Nations, and The Under Secretary General will respond to questions regarding the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2254, endorsing a roadmap for peace in Syria, as well as Security Council Resolution 2249, calling upon states to take action against ISIS as well as the SDG Goals 14 on Oceans and the Seas. And of course, the million dollar question on everyone's mind, who will be the next UN Secretary General? Will the Secretary General, the eighth Secretary General of the United Nations, be the first woman to help the UN? Supporting international criminal justice reflects one of Under Secretary Serpasour's deepest personal convictions. Speaking on behalf of the Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, he has referred to this time as the age of accountability. And as part of his mandate, he recently helped to close the Rwandan ICTR and dealt with the funding crisis of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. I have asked the legal counsel about some of the most defining moments in his work and he has said that accompanying the Secretary General to Rwanda for the remembrance of the 20th anniversary of the genocide in April 2014 and visiting the genocide memorial in Kigali, which is a gravesite of over 250,000 victims of the genocide, had a profound impact on him rededicating himself to the founding principles of the UN Charter. The undersecretary Secretary General often speaks of the sum of our collective efforts and has reaffirmed the importance of partnerships in a new UN. He has said that at the UN some 10 years ago, you would not expect to see panels composed of representatives from Microsoft, Verizon, Walt Disney, Cisco, UNCITRAL, IDLO, and the UN Global Compact, and highly recognized law firms all together in half a day. But this has become the trend, he has said. And he has said, I believe it properly reflects the reality and the needs of the day. In that spirit of these important partnerships, Under Secretary General, I hope you consider Penn Law as a new partner in your efforts. Today's candid conversation is unprecedented at Penn Law. Under Secretary General Serpasore's conversation with Dean Ted Ruger, who is one of our nation's leading administrative constitutional and health law scholars, affords the Penn Law community an opportunity to join in the public conversation on what difference does law, does law at the UN make in the world? Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, I, and I, I want to uh, join on behalf of the entire Penn and Penn Law community in welcoming you, you here, uh, Under Secretary General. We teach law here and, and realize that uh, um, law is never more important to the world's problems, um, never more uncertain, uh, never more um, under pressure and under scrutiny uh, about the way that the law has applied. Um, matches up or fails to match up to ideals of justice uh, that's true at home in many of the controversies we're working on uh, it's true around the world um, and uh, I, I, I do share my colleague's sense that yours is one of the most important jobs in the, in the world in, in applying uh, um, um, and attempting to apply the best best images of our law to the to the world's uh, concrete problems um, I want to thank uh, my colleague, uh, Associate Dean for International Affairs, Ron Silva, who's uh, uh, helped to bring you here and organize this event uh, and kind of energized uh, our international programs in, in many ways. Uh, I want to thank my colleague uh, Bill Burke-White, Director of Perry World House, and of course in our international programs as well, um, and for his support. Um, we um, were committed at Penn Law to engaging beyond Philadelphia, beyond the United States with the, the, the world's most pressing legal problems. We have, a, have had a long-standing but growing partnership with, with the UN, and, and uh, your presence here is, is very important to us. We're very grateful for it, and uh, um, uh, so I want to thank you for that. Um, but the, the, the crowd uh, came to, to hear you, and, and so I, I'll start by asking some, some fairly open-ended questions, and. Uh, uh, I should tell all of you, we, you know, we'll, I'll ask some of the questions really to get things going, but uh, um, our, our distinguished guest is, is willing to take questions from the audience, and so as you hear things you would like to hear more about uh, or topics we don't address that you'd like to hear about, uh, keep them in mind, there will be time to ask those. Um, I think uh, the first question, uh, there are specific legal questions, legal issues, I, I'd love to, we would love to hear your views on. Um, But more generally, um, and this reflects the way we think about law at Penn Law and really throughout our curriculum, is that law is not just the the words on the printed page of a treaty or a constitution, but it's the product of of those texts, plus the kind of institutions that implement them and the people that occupy those institutional posts um, and the kind of societal context in which law plays out. So we take a very thick conception of law. I, I know that you do as well from conversations with you up upstairs. Um, and I guess I would start with kind of an institutional question about your office at the UN. Tell us a bit about um, how it's structured, how it relates to the other parts of the UN, and what you view your internal role in this leading organization, the United Nations, you know, as kind of an in-house lawyer, so to speak. What is your mm-hmm. what is your institutional role um, that even transcends specific issues you would work
2: on? Okay. Very good. First of all, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for your kind introduction. I don't know if I have one of the most important jobs in the world, but it's certainly one of the most interesting. And um, and I like the, the way you phrase it at some stage, if the law at the UN, how does it matter? You know, I like the question because it also implies that it does matter. You know, that was uh, once I gave a... a not a lecture, but uh, more a talk with students at UN University in Tokyo, and the title they had chosen was law at the UN, does it matter? And it was a very interesting question, because their assumption was that uh, it didn't matter that much. And then I wanted to explore with them why did they phrase the question like that? And we arrived to some interesting conclusions. Now, uh, having one of the most interesting jobs in the world uh, I have a very, very good office behind me. This is not a one-man show, of course, as you can imagine. I have a team of more or less 200 uh, of about 61 nationalities, which is very important. Geographic diversity, but also linguistic diversity, so we're able to work in different languages. And that, that's something I, I think is important. And we cover a very wide range of issues. Let's. Um, start, well, as head of the office, let's start by myself. Uh, I have a specific role of uh, being the legal advisor to the Secretary General of the United Nations. And therefore, uh, I can be equal to uh, advising on any matter of international law. Uh, and those are, you know, I, I usually say it's more or less what like you read in the paper in the morning, you know. I have a subscription living in New York of the New York Times, if you read the title. Mm-hmm. Many of those titles will will, uh, will come to us at some stage, mm-hmm. and you will you know, need to have some sort of view on, uh, on, if there is a, 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 a view on the public international law, and that you, the Secretary General will ask you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, the, the office is basically structured in different divisions. We also have a very, very strong um, uh, internal division, and the law public procurement. Mm-hmm. Organization is very, very large, and uh, we cover a lot of uh, countries and uh, aspects. So that generates a lot of internal
3: administrative
2: work. And and then more specifically, I have uh, a division which is entirely dedicated to oceans and the law of the sea, uh, which is an area of international law that it's very dynamic recently. Uh, we basically. We are, I mean, I like to think we are the guardians of the United Nations Convention on the
3: Law of the Sea,
2: which is, you know, something we regard as a, the world constitution for mm-hmm. sea and oceans. Um, we, we had some recent, interesting recent developments, uh, uh, oceans being declared as one specific, specific development goal, Goal 14, in the in last year. It was one of the... I think one of the important achievements of the multilateral agenda, along with climate change, was the adoption of the special development goals. That's how I met Ranjita, by the way, in, a, in an event the United Nations dedicated to rule of law as a special development goal. Uh, so that was uh, that was quite interesting. Now member states are going to start discussing biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, which is basically the legal regime for the ICs, it's a very important matter as well, and uh, many others. Then I have um, a division which is um, called the Codification Division. It's a division that basically supports the efforts of member states to uh, draft, to elaborate international conventions and studies on international law. Uh, that are related to uh, uh, the creation of new international law, that's the codification division. A small treaty section, because we also have the formal role of being of registering uh, uh, international treaties and of being the depository of um, uh, multilateral treaties concluded under the auspices of the United Nations. And we have quite a few. We have over, I think, 500 right now. And, and then we have also, the only division which is outside New York, mm-hmm. because all of my services are concentrated in the secretariat, in the building that most, uh, some of you will probably have visited already, uh, and that's the, the division for international trade law uh, in Vienna. Mm-hmm. So, as you can imagine, the type of work it generates is, is very different. Um, I try to combat an over-specialization by my lawyers. I like them to occasionally change and take care of different mm-hmm. topics, I think it's, it's important, mm-hmm. it's important to myself, and, and uh, all of these, that's uh, the, the, the factors that make my job one of the most mm-hmm.
1: um, And I, I want to spend much of the next hour getting into some of these substantive issues. Another kind of institutional question that would arise, it would arise in a big national government <coughs> like the US government, it would arise in a big corporation perhaps, certainly I, I wonder how it arises in a big complex institution like the UN, and, and this goes to the, the locus of authority for legal interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, in, does your office have a monopoly on interpreting the law within the UN, or are there other parts of the UN that kind of maybe more diffusely might exercise first order interpretation of the treaties and, and conventions, mm-hmm. and and if so, how do you resolve p- potential uh, disagreements okay. within the
2: UN? Okay, that's uh, a formal question. Now. Um, I have a, the monopoly to a certain extent. It means um, if I proceed to draft a written legal opinion on any topic, that opinion is binding to all the secretariat, funds, and programs. But And, and this is the way it is, OK? So it doesn't cover specialized mm-hmm. agencies. But we, we, we don't really work on these. No, before proceeding to issue a, a draft formal opinion, mm-hmm. I mean, we work a lot of, with our colleagues and we meet the different networks, networks of funds and programs, networks of specialized agencies once a year in a, a, a meeting that I chair. Mm-hmm. And there we try to exchange and to, to see what, what are the
3: difficulties mm-hmm.
2: and uh, whether we can study a common solution, a solution that is uniform for for everybody. And um, so yes, I have a certain form of authority, but not that I'm afraid to use it, mm-hmm. but i you know it's used very seldom as such. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this answers your question. It does. Yeah.
1: I mean and I think it's a yeah. um, it's a common it's a common phenomenon in any large and complex yeah. organization. Um, I'd like to, uh, we can follow up on that in, in the broader Q&A, but I, I, and I, uh, I'd like to move to, as you said, your substantive purview is so broad and there's so many issues we could talk about. Uh, I'll start, I'd like to mention a few and, and again kind of invite you and the broader audience to, to, to bring in others. But one thing we were talking about right before we came downstairs was both this very important and kind of cutting edge developments with um, the role of law with the use of force mm-hmm. and, and maybe most innovatively the use of force by non-state actors and here I'm thinking of um, the UN security resolution 2249 about uh, um, calls on states to take action against Isis and would you would you briefly both describe the resolution but then um, explain the challenges about exerting kind of formal legal authority over a, a, an entity that that's not even within the nation-state framework well
2: the the resolution is, is not the most aspect of mm-hmm. the discussion this is actually uh, broader and uh, I, I would say the issue of uh, use of force against non-state actors is probably one of the, the, the most difficult questions right now in public international law and uh, it, it's currently being discussed in different fora. and you know you have a lot of PhD students writing books about this but what is the state of the of the discussion? Um, I mean, following the threat, and it, this is a very <clears throat> serious threat that we need to worry about, um, and the, the loss of control of certain parts of the territory of Iraq and Syria, so these non-state actors or these armed groups that take effective control of parts of the territories of, of countries, um, the issue of how to deal with those groups in military, with the use of force, and uh, how to use that force under the, the, regi- the legal regime of the charter has recently arisen. It started with um, the first, um, uh, I think the first situation where like this was raised was the US fight actually in Syria at the request of the Iraqi government against um, ISIS in Syrian territory without the consent of the Syrian government. And then that, that was followed by, I think, by now, nine, nine other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada, Turkey, France, UK, uh, Germany, uh, New Zealand, and uh, those countries have invoked in different terms mm-hmm. Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, which is self-defense, in order to justify uh, their strikes uh, mm-hmm. against them. Now, this raises a lot of issues, and uh, I also have to clarify that when I, I give these kind of talks, I mean, my thoughts are more about questions than answers, you know, and mm-hmm. the answers that I would refrain from giving publicly mm-hmm. because, you know, I have uh, also taken the, what I say is not relevant. Mm-hmm. But um, just to say that um, this is being very much discussed because um, until now, there was, uh, I, I think the majority of legal, thinkers and practitioners and uh, even professors of international law would consider that uh, uh, it was not invocable <laughs> in the Article 51 of the Charter the use of force against non-state actors. And uh, there is a certain reading. We, we have very little indication from the International Court of Justice. Uh, we have basically three cases dealing with these. It's the advisory opinion on the law, the famous advisory Opinion where the court seems to imply that uh, you cannot really use force under the charter against non-state actors. <coughs> then you have the Nicaragua case, and also another famous decision on armed activities, uh, Uganda versus Congo. Um, I think we have to be very careful in reading these cases, in establishing what they say, but also in establishing what they don't say, okay? So, um, on, on, on terms of principle, and i mean this this conversation can go for much longer Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of principle um, when asked and this i can't talk freely about because it was uh, reported in the press um, when asked uh, if in terms of principle uh, force can be used against um, uh, non-state actors Mm -hmm. as a legitimate defense uh, as a self-defense i have uh, I have uh, I have said yes. This, you know, this legal is not when a notice. Uh, I came across an article where someone took very uh, good note of that. That was not someone irrelevant. That was uh, ex president of the ICJ, Judge Rosalie Higgins. So we have been working in all. Don't don't um, imagine that all answers are. Clear are found, you know. This is an ongoing process and uh, new issues are coming, you know, mm-hmm. every day. But I would say this is probably the most exciting discussion right now in, uh, in international law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Just to follow, it, it, I agree about how exciting it is and uh, maybe a kind of co- appropriate question in a law school setting. Um, and this, you know, what we would teach our students in any issue when when it's a difficult question of law, you first really a big part of the process is where do you look for the answers? Um, and I, I would just ask you, so far on these on these new issues about, say, use of force against non-state actors, um, what are the legal sources uh, that you 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 and your office use in, in figuring out the best answer to this question?
2: That's a very good question. I remember when I was in law school many years ago. One of our teachers, you know, the more conservative teachers, uh, I'm, I'm educated under a continental <coughs> system, Roman-German <coughs> tradition, so everything is codified. It's hard law. We don't like soft law in this continental system. So I remember being like a first grade student mm-hmm. and one civil <coughs> law professor or <coughs> uh, criminal law or one of these more <coughs> established disciplines, international law, that's not really law, is it? It is law, but it's... Uh, it's it's different somehow. And that relates to that very good question. How do we establish what is the law?
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: So, as a petitioner, me and my team, where do we go? We go to the International Court of Justice and to other tribunals. And we go to state practice. Mm-hmm. This, in the absence of hard law, we, have, we go to conventional texts, of course. And we go to state practice as a matter to determine, you know, if. There are, we can say there are rules of customary law which are accepted by the international community as
3: establishing mm-hmm.
2: this and that. So it's a slightly, it's probably, this is probably more familiar to a common law lawyer. Uh, for me, this is, you know, a more intellectual, challenging process than probably for a common law lawyer. But, um, but uh, we do have certain challenges, mm-hmm. of course. But uh, I think that's why also... It makes our life interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, is it is there a, is there a kind of corollary um, leadership or management challenge you have in in leading an office with lawyers who have such diverse training in different countries and in civil and common law? Do you, is do you have uh, is that you know, do you feel like it's uh, what are the kind of virtues and, and challenges of having lawyers trained in so many different legal traditions around the world?
3: Yeah. Well, the the.
2: I need to have the different legal cultures be presented because this is the United Nations. -hmm. But there is something very interesting, is that I think there is something beyond national differences and legal education differences. I think lawyers tend to operate very similarly. It's very strange, but I mean, I I talk to different lawyers from different nationalities. We tend to ask the same questions Mm -hmm. in the same way. Maybe we have different methods to get to our Mm -hmm. answers, but there is something we could define as a legal mind, Mm -hmm. and and that is true in Japan, or in Portugal, Mm -hmm. or in the US. We tend to operate under the same intellectual processes.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And after a while, that is stronger than the national and cultural differences between us.
3: Mm -hmm. That's
1: a fascinating thought that there's something about the lawyer mind that might transcend nationality. <laughs> We're having a speaker here in a few weeks, a, a psychologist named Larry Richard, who's written a book called The Lawyer Brain. So and uh, yes, so <laughs> I um, didn't read the book, but
2: yes. I think there is something of a legal mind, mm-hmm. a legal brain. Um,
1: the, uh, just to, to shift to a different, uh, equal, perhaps, perhaps uh, even more important issue in, in the long term about climate change and environmental protection. Uh, to ask a very big, uh, open-ended question first, uh, is, you know, this is a phenomenon that's caused by long-term economic issues and development, very complex Mm -hmm. politically. Um, You know, what would you say to a skeptic about, you know, what role would law, what's the role of law in something as these long-term economic trends that are producing Mm -hmm. climate change? Um, What does law have to offer in this, in in the climate, Mm -hmm. climate preservation area?
2: Well, law I mean law it's not self standing. Law serves a purpose, we we, mm-hmm. we 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 try to achieve something. I, I climate change is a good example because we have so many skepticism around us and it, you know it's mm-hmm. all doom and gloom and I think that's one good victory of multilateralism. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I'm not going if, you know, climate is changing or not because there are climate change denialists and so, I mean, and I'm not a scientist, Mm -hmm. so I am assuming scientists are right that climate is changing. And if you live in New York like you do and you have 21 Celsius on Christmas Day, you tend to agree that Mm -hmm. climate is changing because that was unusual to have 21 Celsius on Christmas Day. But uh, that is also, an example of what multilateralism can do for the individual nations. This is a problem that states cannot address individually. It's just not possible. It's not even the United States,
3: you know.
2: And nowadays there are very few problems that states can address individually. Mm-hmm. So they have to rely on international cooperation to address those which I believe are, will be the main challenges for the next 20 or 30 years. Climate change, <coughs> terrorism, uh, migration. Mm-hmm. Whatever a country does, it will affect other countries, and so mm-hmm. we, we, we have to work on a multilateral uh, uh, framework. And, and climate change is a good example. The, to, to establish an objective of um, uh, reduction of uh, Average temperature two percent, and then one point five percent in relation to pre-industrial era. To have adaptation measures, financing measures, something that member states, states have to address collectively. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, individual efforts will be just, you know, useless. and this applies to many, many, many uh, areas, mm-hmm. challenges, mm-hmm. epidemics, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, uh, Last year, also, we had the scare of uh, Ebola, Mm
3: -hmm. you
2: know, and and that was also a good example how uh, states can work well together when they want, Mm -hmm. you know, because uh, that was tackled effectively but with the effort of many states put together, Mm -hmm. and I think the threat is more or less over. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: You mentioned Ebola, just to follow up, on those kind of global Mm-hmm. Health issues, um, what is, do, does your office have a working relationship with the World Health Organization or, um, and how, how what, what is that dynamic uh, like?
2: Well, we did ex- actually because of Ebola, because um, mm-hmm. Ebola was, was really a big scare, I mean, mm-hmm. for all of us. And, um, and that was um, uh, uh, the first time the United Nations would be launching not a peacekeeping mission, but a healthkeeping mission, and mere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that a mission was um, established with the specific uh, mm-hmm. objective of com- combating the um, epidemics. So, this required that we had to act very quickly, and uh, this generated a lot of work, mm-hmm. because we had to establish different protocols with the different governments involved, mm-hmm. with the different partners, uh, transport issues, insurance issues. It was uh, It was done, you know, very, much and the pressure, uh, but it, it was actually a very very interesting project. Where mm-hmm. My team has been
3: involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You mentioned one other issue you mentioned, and you mentioned that you had an affinity for, for oceans. And uh, given your ba- background, uh, what um, you know, what what are the key legal issues mm-hmm. that, that come through this office on on um, the world's oceans and marine uh, issues? Is this is it mostly in, is it in environmental protection? Is it trade or all of the above? Or?
2: It's actually everything, because when you look at the United Nations Convention on the World of the Sea, 1982, it's a very, very comprehensive system that actually covers every aspect related to, to, to ocean. Mm-hmm. So you have many different established processes going on mm-hmm. in relation to oceans. Uh, I mean, member states, to give you an example, for instance, the, the continental shelf,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the commission on the limits of the continental shelf. Something that member states have a keen interest, because of course this has enormous uh, or may have enormous uh, economic uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are about seventeen two submissions right now to the Commission on uh, the limits of the continental shelf and um, fisheries. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned before, member states have decided to engage in a discussion. Uh, of uh, uh, a new regime for biodiversity in areas beyond national mm-hmm. jurisdiction. So, basically, trying to address uh, the high seas regime. It's, uh, it's a very interesting field.
3: Of, field of work.
2: And then I have this uh, special um, I mean, role as a focal point of UN Oceans, yeah. um, which means basically that I am in charge of these um, interagency coordination mechanisms where I have to talk to all the different specialized agencies, including UNESCO, the International mm-hmm. Maritime Organization, to make sure that the different individual initiatives are put together with some logic, and mm-hmm. you know, there are not unnecessary uh, overlapping and so on. Mm-hmm. So I, I never have a boring day, actually.
1: Uh, it's, <laughs> indeed, it sounds like it. Um, I, d- I would like to invite you to now, to, if you would speak, uh, Speak a little more biographically, even back to when you were coming out of law school, and you know you're, you're here not just as a as an important official and expert, but in some ways as an exemplar in the best way of uh, somebody who's dedicated his career to, to international law and a lot of us and we have students here who maybe even faculty who aspire to, to this and, and just would would love to hear kind of your uh, your path coming out of law school when when did you know you wanted to involved with these issues? What were the what were some of the uh, decision points in your career that helped you helped you be where you are today?
2: Okay, you know every person is a different situation. I, I when I was uh, when I finished law school which is is quite long, unfortunately, it was five years to get your first degree, so first I was a bit fed up with law. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 in the beginning of my career I wanted to try different
3: things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and um, it's something I recommend to young people, that try different things. Because I did a lot of different things, but they, they helped me for what, what I am now. For instance, I, I, I lecture criminal procedural law. It's like, it does, you know, it apparently you would say there's not really a but you do now, but there is. I, I was legal aid, you know? And, uh, and I suffered a lot because it requires so much really. But it But it's not really related to what I do, but it does help me to be what I am now as a warrior. So it's important to cover different things. I, I think I was always attracted to international relations. Mm-hmm. And I started in, a, in, in private practice, and I do all the classic training, corporate law, and, mm-hmm. you know contracts and, and, and so on. And I really liked it, you know. I, I worked for General Motors for a couple of years. and But I, after, after a while, you know, I, I decided I, I wanted a broader range of interests. I was very interested in public policy and in politics. You know, I'm very interested in politics, even in American politics, <laughs> which is hard to follow. <laughs> uh, you know, I follow American politics because I have committed to to uh, run one hour in the gym at the machine, and there is a little television of that. <laughs> so I, for day I have one hour of American politics because no, my happy. condolences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. easy to follow, <laughs> but it is a very interesting <laughs> moment. Interesting would be yeah. one way to put it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Then, um, then I was very—I was briefly in politics actually. Mm-hmm. I was um, chef de cabinet of a minister when, you know, my late twenties. On a totally different sector, maritime affairs, mm-hmm. and uh, so one of the toughest things I had to do in my life was to negotiate with Trade unions. So after that, I'm prepared to do everything. But <laughs> and uh, and then I was very very lucky because the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has recruited me to go to Brussels to our mission with the European mm-hmm. Union as the legal advisor. And, uh, and, 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 and there I, I got hooked, you know. I said, mm-hmm. you know, this is really what I want to do. I love negotiating. I love being at the negotiation table with other states and mm-hmm. discussing, you know, specific thoughts. And uh, it would be very difficult for me to go to a strictly mm-hmm. national um, environment afterwards. Mm-hmm. Then I, I was briefly Director General in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Portugal. And then I, I was very lucky. I was recruited uh, by the Secretary of General to do good job. And uh, that was a very happy day mm-hmm. when I got a phone call from New York saying, you are the one. Please pack and be here in four weeks, which I negotiated five weeks. <laughs> and this was in September 2013. And I'm a very happy man. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Um, I, I would be remiss on behalf of our students if I didn't kind of ask a follow-up even about, so the, the younger attorneys who you hire today come from multiple countries. What are, what are their backgrounds typically? Uh, where, what have they done to, to come into your office? There, it's, uh, there
2: is not one background. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, one way to catch my attention when I'm recruiting is, is basically to have some diversity of experiences. I, I like to see that in a senior and uh, a lot of people in private practice, which is a very good basic training for a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And it gives something that I think is very important, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: which is a client-oriented perspective, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm, which lawyers who have trained a few years in private practice have. And I think where you you are a lawyer in the public sector, in an international organization, you cannot lose that client-oriented vision. Mm -hmm. You have to help someone. I mean, I don't, want, uh, I'm not running a university. I don't want people who do and who write beautiful papers. When, I mean, on my first month, I was shocked. I asked an opinion of, or something. I got a 15-page opinion. I said, I'm not going to read this. So our colleague is not going to read it. I know people who have this client-oriented. I'm here to help people solving a problem, not compromising on the principles, of course. And that's what we have to do. I see law and the role of a lawyer. In a large process
3: mm-hmm.
2: of decision making, of you know achieving a certain result, mm-hmm. and and that's what we have. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: But uh, one of the things that I look more—it's strange in a lawyer because you know lawyers are usually not considered creative people,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and for me that's very important in a lawyer: creativity. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has it. You know, you can you can train it. You're not born with the, with these kind of skills. But uh, classically, people do not associate creativity with lawyers. It's very important to be
3: creative as a lawyer. Mm-hmm.
1: So, that's, uh, you know, that's something I've heard so many times in the last few months in very different settings, government, business, yeah. as I meet with, the, yeah. that don't... don't, don't and it's, it's imperative on us as a law school not to uh, emphasize certain kinds of learning at the expense of creativity. So yeah. you, you say that it may not be... It's interesting, you say that you can't learn it. Yeah. Although I think we need to think about how we can develop it. But at the very least, we have an obligation in law schools not to yeah. beat it out of students. So, yeah. No, you
2: can, yeah. you, no, no, you have to encourage it. You have to encourage it. Because, I mean, to give you two very specific examples, since I arrived, I was very lucky also since I arrived, because I got very interesting from, you know, I, I don't have monotonous, I mean, new questions. Mm-hmm. So we had to deal with the chemical weapons mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We had a joint mission established with OPCW, the organization of of uh, chemical weapons, and we had to put something together for, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, to address the issue of the use of chemical weapons in Syria. But we didn't have any precedent, so we have to build things and we have to come up with creative solutions. And we cannot look into the past because it was the first time we were doing that. The same with UNMIR, Ebola, and that with the pressure. Or, okay, we don't have a precedent, so we have to come up with a solution. What is the problem? How can we address this? That's where you need creativity. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you. Um, Well, I'd like to open it up in in a few seconds to to questions from the audience uh, and and invite you to to follow up on anything that you've heard uh, to raise new new issues. Uh, I will ask by way, and we do have two, if you would raise your hands. uh, Actually, if you would go up to the microphones in the back, um, if you'd like to ask a question. or at least um, uh, raise your hand, and we may be able to uh, to get the microphone to you. Um, I'll, I'll ask you, um, under Secretary General. I'll, I'll ask you one question by way of transition. The, the the one that my colleagues and I are interested. What what can you tell us about the next Secretary General, and and what what's the well, can you can you give us? I will uh, not the be sp- the next
2: yeah. Secretary General <laughs> yeah. because I do not intend to apply for the job, and I doubt I would be retained. Uh, I mean. This is January. I don't know, of course, who the next Secretary General will be. And I think that new names, new candidates will come until, until summer. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that before summer, we will have a full idea of who, who's really a candidate to be the next Secretary General. But the only thing I can talk a little bit is about process, because mm-hmm. things seem to be changing lately. Mm-hmm. I hope they really change. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the main criticism to this process is that this is very much the big boys game, meaning the permanent members of the Security Council having the exclusive choice on who is going to be the next Secretary General, which very much corresponds to the truth, I mean, basically. And uh, that does not mean that states are happy with this state of affairs. So there has been some movement in the General Assembly, and especially in public opinion, saying we need to change the state of affairs. I mean, we need to have a strong Secretary General, uh, and that Secretary General has to be selected in a transparent process, which is more inclusive, uh, which other states, or states other than the permanent uh, five members of the Security Council may have a say. And, uh, and by the way, uh, we should uh, also consider recruiting a woman Secretary General. Because um, the language, um, you know, there's very little indication in the Charter of the United Nations on how the Secretary General is to be chosen. Something, in 97, Article 97, which is basically procedural. It's upon recommendation of the Security Council, mm-hmm. the General Assembly, by simple majority, etc., etc., etc. And then there is this funny resolution of 1946 which uh, tries to put some flesh uh, and then just speaks that uh, the Secretary General must be a man, a man of eminence and high attainments. okay? And uh, because it was funny, uh, 1946 was inconceivable that it could be a woman. Things have changed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Last year, in September, actually it was a funny day, it's 11 September, so it's not a good date, but um, there was a resolution on the, the new process. and where they have established that the process needs to be inclusive, transparent, take into account gender balance, which I think is a big change, Mm -hmm. and uh, geographic diversity, which is natural. And then uh, they have agreed there is this newer range between the president of the General Assembly and the president of the Security Council uh, to open this formal process of asking for candidates Mm -hmm. from member states but making these candidates public.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And ideally to have, um, I wouldn't say auditions or or, Mm -hmm. or, I'll just say here for confirmations, but but exchanges within the General Assembly with candidates. And I hope this happens like this because that would increase uh, very much the transparency of the Mm -hmm. process and the sense of ownership of other states. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I mean, it would increase the legitimacy of the Secretary mm-hmm. General as a representative of the organization and all things. So let's wait and see. I think many more names we will come to the to the,
3: the discussion.
2: Yeah. I
1: think it's... Does, the, does the new process and the implementing um, mm-hmm. documents supersede the language that where it says a man, or is Yeah, yeah, it,
2: yeah. sure. sure. Yeah, um, that's uh, from the past. Yeah.
1: What would you? I mean, were you? uh, This is a a very kind of uh, a legal interpretive question. What you know, if you're willing to answer it, what would your office have done even under the old text, Mm -hmm. had a woman been put forward? Would you? Would you? For the
2: General Assembly to 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 change it, but uh, I don't. I don't I I, I could very well try uh, uh, an explanation that would be against. objectives of the United Nations, mm-hmm. and one of the purest is human rights mm-hmm. and discrimination, he would not fall under,
1: you know, one of the mm-hmm. oh, No, I think, no, just as an intellectual exercise, I think one could interpret uh, an old, a very antiquated phrase of a man yeah. to embrace yeah. men yeah. or women. Yeah. And, you
2: yeah. Know, yeah. You know, I mean, things have changed, actually, when, when the charter was adopted in San Francisco, uh, the non white delegates to the San Francisco conference have to travel in different compartments. Yeah, let's not forget this.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I, I want to I encourage uh, members of the audience to follow up with questions. We'll try it without microphones. Um, please, please speak clearly <laughs> and loudly.
3: Sure. Um, my understanding is that. The Can you please tell us who oh, you are? I teach human rights. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, my understanding is that the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia is one of the most is the mo- one of the most successful courts of justice the UN has established. Mm-hmm. Is there any thought being given at the UN to a similar court for the crimes being committed in Syria and by ISIS down the road, or is there what's the thinking about something like that at the UN? Yeah. Uh,
2: well. There is a lot of discussions on accountability for atrocity crimes being committed in, in Syria, but in, in other situations. Um, and uh, there is no specific move in that direction. There There's a lot of uh, initiatives in the, in, the, in the private sector, in universities, gathering of information and establishing models about that. Uh, I think before we we, we we start talking about accountability in Syria, which the Secretary General has, has called for accountability, we need to solve the immediate, uh, immediate crisis in Syria, and that's to finish the war. So, you know, the talks are starting in Geneva. I, I really hope they succeed. Uh, we're still not there, but that is very important. But I think different uh, actors are calling for accountability Syria. Uh, we have not. We're not uh, in the phase of drafting a statue, and uh, we're not there. I hope we will come to some form of accountability. Also, the same too in what concerns South Sudan. There have been discussions uh, about accountability in South Sudan. Um, we're still not there, but I, I, I hope that soon we can come to some some sort of accountability in South Sudan, and also in other parts of the globe. Um, uh, the occasion of discussing, exchanging some ideas with uh, Ranjito, she said Professor mm-hmm. Ranjito, always, during our taxi <laughs> drive through here. So let's say that we're not still ready to talk about a, an accountability project in, in. But uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, information being collected. Um, Information that could be used on a future prosecution of uh, atrocity crimes. You know, just not human rights reporting on serious violations of international humanitarian law. There's a lot of information being collected that one day can be used in a, 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 a serious prosecution in the formal sense. The Secretary General, of course, has called for the referral of the situation to the International Criminal Court. But, you know, Syria not being a a state party, a referral needs the vote in the Security Council and, of course, the divergences between Russia and the US. Uh, Professor White.
1: Uh, Hi, my name is Bill Burkwhite. I am a professor here at the law school and run Perry World House, uh, which is one of the co-sponsors of today's event. And I'm wondering if you might reflect a little bit on the relationships between power and law at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the efforts which I tried to help move along when I was working for Secretary (coughs) Clinton of reforming the Security Council itself have not led very far. But I'm wondering to what degree shifts in the global distribution of power are changing the norms of international law Mm-hmm. even if they're not changing the institutional
2: structure of the UN itself? That's a very, you can write a book about it. <laughs> not probably in a very perceptible manner, but, and I have to be careful with what I say as the United Nations Council. I feel like covering two different aspects. First, it is, again, the first question, what is the role of law in the United Nations and does it end? And I think it does. from some strange reason, member states have decided that this would be a rules-based organization. And, and then they have created the Office of Legal Affairs in 1946. From there on, much belongs also to, to me as legal counsel and to, to how do I make space for law in the process of the political decision-making. And this is, this is, um, this is not easy every day. The relationship between lawyers and political masters is not a very peaceful one all the time. The, I mean, the the, the relationship between lawyers and diplomats is not like a love marriage. It's more a convenience marriage, you know? it's a mariage de raison, not of love. So, the kind of Tolerators more than their lovers, but it also belongs to us to make them understand that it's very important that law is an essential component of the political decision-making process. This sounds a bit abstract, but this reflects very much my experience of being the legal advisor for the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Portugal and now for the Secretary General. You have to bring the legal aspects to the discussion and make sure that they do we contemplate yeah.
3: mm-hmm.
2: this decision. The other aspect is the more institutional aspect. The world is changing. I mean, there, I think there is something, and I don't want to discuss what would be the ideal composition of the Security Council, for instance. So, uh, there is one thing that we can all agree in this room: The world in 1945 is not the world in 2016. I mean, how many states did you have in in 1945? 50? And now you have 197, 95? 95 members of the United Nations in then disputed. (laughs) So I mean, this is, nobody can contest it. So in these different world, uh, with different powers, uh, is the institutional expression of what is the current rule adequate? So, it's more a rhetoric question because mm-hmm. the answer will be unanimously. not. but then going into the details, uh, I wouldn't like to see any reform of the Security Council which would lead to a more, um, or to an expansion of veto powers, because I dislike those. You see? And so, if it means any more members with veto powers, you know. So, this is an ongoing discussion. I don't think the Security Council is going to be reformed tomorrow, but I hope it would be soon in the future. Because this adds also to the legitimacy of the Security Council as the world's biggest powerful organ. And it happened something strange two years ago when, you know, remember when Saudi Arabia was elected and then Mm -hmm. they refused to take their place? It's strange, isn't it? Why why was that? So we all need to reflect on this and to reflect how the world is changing Mm -hmm. and there was clearly a Western dominance. International law, to a very large extent, is the creation of Western countries also as an instrument of colonial expansion, and this is not true anymore. So I, I, I have been twice uh, in China, it's a country that fascinates me, but and the Chinese government has been very kind, has invited me twice to participate in uh, different events related to international law. You should know there are 400 universities in China now with courses of international law. This means mm-hmm. something, right? And uh, when I arrived in the United Nations in 2013, which is like yesterday, uh, and we were discussing issues concerning international rule of law, and you know, I was advised, oh, you have to be careful with international rule of law because, you know, for instance, the Chinese hate it, and if you're gonna speak very openly about it, there will be, you know. And then last year, I was invited to Beijing to the meeting of the Asian African legal consultants organization, and the pri- a prime minister, well, the premier of the council of that came and gave a speech on the rule of law, a speech of 40 minutes on rule of law. So, I mean, things are changing so quickly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's, um, we have to acknowledge that, and I, I don't think we are acknowledging that uh, as much as we should, you know. In one of the conferences, I was very naive, which I sometimes, I'm still a bit naive sometimes, And I was, you know, addressing Chinese colleagues and I was trying to be very polite. I said, well, it's very good to be here and to exchange with Chinese colleagues because, you know, um, it's not very known abroad, a Chinese thinking of international law. And uh, so this is very useful to exchange with you. And, you know, in the very diplomatic way Chinese are, they waited until lunchtime. And then I had the editor of the Chinese Journal of International Law who came and offered me like uh, uh, a copy and said, yeah, we are already in the 15 year of publication. And then <laughs> it was like calling me in a very nice way. You're ignorant, you should know better. You have a library at uh, a very good library at, in New York at the United Nations. Go go down and check it. And then Judge Shu from the International Court of Justice, which is a brilliant, brilliant lady, she she left the, the, the conference and she went somewhere, and brought me back a book which is with the title of Chinese thinking, contemporary Chinese thinking of international law. Like, well, like there, there was the second nice <laughs> yeah. insult with a nice uh, some nice words. Read it, you know. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of interest, uh, and uh, we have to take account. Also what this, sorry, Eric, no, know, I can't go I'm sorry, I'm a big talker, Yes, but um, also what this means um, in, uh, in terms of human rights, I'm very interested about that, you know, because uh, we are in the United Nations so much impregnated by this human rights culture, and I am personally, I mean, it's so important to me, uh, and uh, Let's see what, what what is the impact of these uh, new changes in, in human rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a very interesting uh, episode uh, in uh, in um, last year, and uh, the Secretary General has decided to uh, expand the, the the benefits in the, of the staff members to same-sex uh, mm-hmm. unions. And this has generated a discussion that, you know, I was surprised and I had to go down to defend this proposal and to discuss with the different states what did it mean. And, uh, you know, I had to deal with all the different reactions and uh, we have, uh, before I got to New York, I think I had a very Eurocentric vision of the world. Um, I'm losing it. But in the West, I think we still have a very Western-centric vision of the world. And OK, I will stop you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well,
1: we're going to ask you to continue with with some more questions. Uh, Yes, in the back.
3: Um, Hello again.
1: (laughs)
4: How are you? Hi.
3: It's been a pleasure. Um, So my question
4: is just, given today's climate um, around the world, how do you respond when people say, um, or how do you advocate? adequately address um, a question when people decide that countries cannot adequately defend their national security without sacrificing human rights on some level, or who can't close this without one of the, the
2: other suffering or something? Well, I, I, never, I never agree with that comment. It's like when you're five years old and people ask if you prefer mom or dad. I mean, human rights and national security are not incompatible. And there are different ways of dealing with both concerns, so these are not incompatible, inco- incompatible values. What is more important is that you have some that you you have some sort of democratic control of whoever is dealing with your security interests. You know that's what I think is the most important. But uh, but um, this is not alien to human rights. You can very well keep respecting human rights. And, uh, of course. Um, you may have to deal with, uh, because you have new challenges, you may have to deal with new forms of uh, intrusion in your uh, personal freedom, communications, and so on. But even with these new, new, new ways of dealing with the, with the challenges, there is a proper way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. OK, I, I'm being very general, but deliberately.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, yes, you. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. Uh, thank you for uh, coming. Please inter- introduce yourself.
4: Yeah. Sure. Uh, I'm Robert. I'm an undergrad. Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, so my question is, you know, you spoke a lot about fisheries. Uh, the UN Convention the Law of the Sea is a big issue uh, nowadays. And speaking of China, um, there's a huge issue about the South China Sea. I was just wondering how your office is addressing um, the issue, you, know, you have all, almost all the countries in that region claiming part of it, uh, you have untapped resources of not only fisheries, but also potentially oil, um, and I was wondering, you know, how is the UN you know, preparing to sort of address the issue? Because it's, it's a big one as it is. It's um, a huge one,
2: yeah. it's a huge one. Uh, we, 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 of course, we have studied very well the situation. The Secretary General has encouraged several times has offered these good offices in the different disputes and has encouraged cooperation within ASEAN to address these issues. Uh, ideally, we have an international court of justice which deals very, very well with border disputes and establishment, or delimitation of borders. Uh, if you look into Latin America, in the last three years, there are like Twelve cases of uh, border delimitation in Latin America, either in land and in sea. Of course, you know that in the sea follows the land, so the questions are always linked. Um, and that's that's a, a very a very important issue. So we cannot instruct the countries to do whatever we think is adequate, but we can encourage diplomacy. Uh, we can discourage an escalation of tensions in the region. Uh, the Secretary General uh, can publicly, you know, call for uh, cooperation, regional cooperation, and bilateral diplomacy, and can offer his, his good offices and recommend a judicial statement uh, when states are ready to do so. Do but I'm not, I'm not gonna mm-hmm. tell you who's right and who's wrong, because <laughs> sure. I cannot say that publicly. <laughs> sure, okay. You know, part of the, also the claims is that uh, this is, this is a very complex story. I hope that the tensions do decrease soon, and uh, I know parties are talking uh, within ASEAN, uh, and I've talked to a few representatives of the different states of the region, so I think I'm, I'm aware of the, the technicalities and the details of the discussion. Um, these border issues are never easy, and uh, especially because involved in China. China also feels that, in a way, coming so late to the international arena was not a part in the process, you know, in the processes living. So it's, um, it will take time to solve but I'm confident that uh, a, a peaceful solution, which is one of the main uh, things the charter um, uh, uh, suggests a peaceful uh, solution of the dispute, will be, will be found at some stage. Assuming that no state has a, an interest in, in having uh, war and having, uh, conferences committed mm-hmm. to the military uh, mm-hmm. uh,
4: budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I'm Carlos Sudehgi, and my work is on long-term evaluation of large-scale technologies in organizations, specifically from the idea of causation. So I have a question for which really comes from in what you had mentioned in the introduction about hard law and soft law. Mm-hmm. And that distinction, I think, is very important, and what is implicit within it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it seems to be expressed also by uh, a U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Bry in his latest book, U.S. and the World, and he's mentioned that you know, there's a need to have a more international approach to domestic law. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what is involved in this our philosophical problem of ethical relativism, of perception and reality, how what we understand as reality of evidence and so on. And uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, when he was the managing director of International Monetary Fund, when we had this crisis, the global economic crisis, he had said, we are in a state of mandatory cooperation uh, and we need to move towards voluntary cooperation. And that's where I see United Nations Mm. as a voluntarily united nation. Mm-hmm. So, the question there and the conundrum mm-hmm. in this is that for voluntary cooperation one needs freedom of choice mm-hmm. and freedom requires a free society. Mm-hmm. And that's where the conundrum is because society cannot exist without caring for the other. But if we are free, why should we care for the other? Mm-hmm. So, how do we have a free society?
2: Is that a question I have to answer? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I would get a novel if I would answer that question. <laughs> Oof. Uh, yes, we, we are the UN is a voluntary cooperation entity. I mean, I, I make the parallel with the European Union, which is something totally different, where states have actually transferred powers, which can or which can then be used in, in adopting legislation that mm-hmm. you know will be applicable in their own countries. It's, it's a different regime. Um, But maybe that's the only way of putting together all nations in the world, because it's the only universal form that we have. Mm -hmm. I mentioned hard law, soft law, to say precisely that I don't like the idea of soft law. Because for me, law is law. Mm -hmm. And and to explain that for a continental lawyer, that's even stranger to to speak about hard law and, and soft law. I like hard law as law, as such. And my number two, by the way, who is American, is not Secretary in General. He doesn't like the, the, the distinction mm-hmm. between hardware and software Neither, so mm-hmm. this is not strictly a, a, a cultural thing. It's uh, your reflection is very interesting, but you know, I could only reflect with you. Mm-hmm. you. Um, I don't know if it relates to what you were saying, but at some stage, I was asked by a journalist in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how do you deal with the fact that in the Security Council, you now have Venezuela and Angola to, I mean, countries were are not democratic as such. And, uh, and I said, well, I mean, this is very important to have one place where everybody has a seat. even North Korea. I mean, where else can you meet these people and discuss with these people and, uh, and, uh, and have some pressure? And, uh, and there's also something interesting which relates to all of these, irrespective of the different societies and their democratic nature or the respect for human rights. There is something I have never seen until now. It's one nation or one country saying, I do not respect international law. All, all of them, they claim to respect international law. This is interesting, you know? There's not one country saying, we don't care about the much world. It's funny. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm being a bit abstract. but <laughs> well, it, it was an
1: abstract question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one or two very brief questions. Uh, yes, how about one more question here?
3: Uh, yes, we touched briefly upon the Security Council reform and also the past resolutions on Syria. But one of the real problems is the submission of the Security Council on Syria. and. Um, France just had a proposal um within security council grouping from veto power in case mm-hmm. of mass atrocities. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see this proposal? Is this maybe more likely to achieve the security council reform? And are
2: there any legal tools you can think of to further such a proposal? Yeah, I love that proposal because I think that one of the weaknesses of the United Nations the United Nations is very big, so we have to be very precise. When we talk about United Nations, something I forgot to say, which United Nations are we talking about? The United Nations of the General Assembly, the United Nations of the Security Council, the United Nations of the Secretariat, it's all different United Nations. The assumption, the underlying assumption on the question UN and law, does it matter, is that one. Is that Security Council is not operating the way it should because it has special responsibilities in terms of peace and security and when we see what's going on in Syria and in other parts, every citizen is shocked I mean you know how is it possible so whenever the Security Council does not live to its you know, expectations, and we all pay in the United Nations giving an Im- image you know inefficiency. What what are you guys doing? I mean, people are dying every day in Syria. Hmm? Now, the Security Council is also the reflex of, you know, the real politics of the world and uh, the actors in this situation have names and the Secretary General, in a very brave speech, last General Assembly, pointed out the five countries that have to sit at the table and solve this crisis. And we're still not there because you mentioned the Security Council resolution which is, it's a big effort. I'm very happy we have it, but very ambiguous in a lot of things. So, a lot of work has to be done. So, my colleague, Stefan de Bisturo, who is the special envoy of the Secretary General um, to Syria, has a very, very difficult task, and let's all support this process. On the French proposal, I mean, as a lawyer and as a lawyer so much committed to international criminal justice and prevention of atrocity crimes, I can only applaud it. You know? That gave origin to a code of conduct, which is now supported by 34 states. And uh, when you work for the United Nations, you can never think of the short term. You'd never think that things are going to happen in six months. But think on historical time. So I hope this initiative in 10 years or 20 years will, will be illegal to or give origin to something. That's, uh, that's what I hope.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a noble aspiration, and I think uh, I, have, I have a few words I want to say, and thanks, but before I, before I close, is there anything, can I invite you, anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd like to say or share? It was wide-ranging. <laughs> <So you laughs>
2: no, there are many things we didn't touch upon. Yeah. but the only last thing is that I'm very discreet in talking to the press and so on, because I think it's part of my job being discreet. Mm-hmm. But I, I really like coming to universities because I, I think it's very important to pass the message to the younger generation. Mm-hmm. You're now studying your life, but as citizens of the world, I mean, it's very important that this generation will support mm-hmm. multilateralism, mm-hmm. international organizations, and the United Nations. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I come to universities, to mm-hmm. exchange, to explain what we do. To try to get your interest in sometimes you know working for us, working with us, or at least supporting what we do. <clears throat>